We're in the book of Nahum, and if you were here last week, your marker should be there at the book of Nahum. And if you weren't here last week, find Nahum the same way I do. Go all the way to the left, find the table of contents, look for Nahum, and then open to the appropriate page. But while y'all are opening up your Bible, let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to understand and obey his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we worship you with our mouths and our, and our voices. And Father, it's not a complete worship in our heart if we don't also give you the same priority, position, and place with your word, Father God. We have to obey your word and, and it has to line up. We can't just praise you with our lips while our hearts are far from you. So we ask that you would speak to us from your word this morning, that you would reveal yourself to us. And as you reveal yourself to us, Father God, we wouldn't shy away from what we see, but Lord, we would respond and react appropriately to what you show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we opened up the book of Nahum, and we were confronted with some characteristics of God that we had to deal with and we could not ignore. We looked at things like the jealousy of God. We looked at the vengeance of God. We looked at the wrath of God. And through those attributes, we were able to see God's care and comfort for his people and how it comes through in a way that is impossible without those characteristics. We were able to see that in those characteristics, God revealed his goodness and his holiness. Well, this morning as we turn to Nahum chapter 2, the comforting prophet Nahum brings the message of God's pronounced judgment for Nineveh. This judgment against Nineveh from Nahum comes 140 years after the events of the prophet Jonah. 140 years after Nineveh had repented and God had sworn off the judgment at that time. 140 years later, they have once again turned from God and back to their sin. So God sends Nahum to give the message of warning because God has never and will never pour out his wrath without warning and opportunity for repentance. And so God's warning to Nineveh and to all who persist in sin is strong and clear. If you refuse to turn from evil, you will perish because God judges. God judges sin. And as strong as his warning is for the judgment, so also is his willingness to forgive and restore those who would seek him. Hear the warning this morning that God judges. And may this remind us that God cares because when God judges, it means that one day God will set things right. So starting in Nahum chapter two, verse one says, one who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength 
For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. Though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations and spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers and they stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are open and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water since from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. Where is the lion's lair or the feeding ground of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness prowled and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away. The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its dens with the kill and its layers with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. As we go through this and we see God revealing himself as judge, there are some truths that we need to see that happens through the way God pronounces his judgment on them. The first way I want to look at this is how it opens up. There is a challenge that is issued. There's a challenge that is issued in the first two verses. It says, one who is scattered is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself and summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel, though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. So Nahum opens up, his word from the Lord is this. One who scatters is coming up against you. And when I first read this, I saw one who scatters is coming up against you. And surely one who scatters could be the Lord. We've seen it throughout the the Bible in which God has scattered people. The first time we encounter this is in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel, when God had told them, go out, multiply and spread out among the earth. But yet they stayed there. They stayed together. They built a tower and they said, we're going to reach up to God. And God came down, confused the language and scattered them throughout the earth. We've seen it in other nations in which judgment is pronounced and they come across and he says, I'm going to scatter you among them. They're going to come in and they're going to envelop you in, in, in which they will be no more. But I believe here, it's not so much talking about the Lord being the one who is the scatterer, but it's an unnamed attacker. But 
Look at Nahum's way of pronouncing it. It is so certain, Nahum speaks with the present tense. And the scatterer is coming up against them, and it speaks of the hostile military campaign and operations. And immediately after this announcement that there's one who's scattering, coming up against you, then Nahum gives four terse commands. It says, man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength. And I read in that a sense of irony. Nahum is urging the city to prepare for the approaching siege, but Nahum, as anybody who knows God, knows that these precautions will not hold back the siege or change its outcome. All Nineveh's efforts would be futile, as God said. In in Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, we looked at this last week, it says, Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, For the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. Said with such certainty. And so the urging for this preparation to the ruler of the Assyrian Empire, Sennacherib, would sound kind of ridiculous. He spent six years He built an armory in the city of Nineveh that covers 40 acres. His successor, Esarhaddon, enlarged it by adding also chariots, wagons, horses, mules, bows, quivers, arrows, all other equipment with which to protect themselves. The road inside the city It's not your standard size road. This road has been enlarged. And the reason you enlarge the road is so that your army, when it marches out, can actually line up with more to its number and march out that much quicker. And so what I see here instead, there's this challenge that's being issued, right? Nahum is saying, there's one who scatters, who's coming against you. God is coming against you. So get ready to stand. The irony is there's no amount of preparation or resources that will bring victory when the Lord is against you. So it's kind of like, make yourselves ready, but it doesn't matter because the scatterer is coming. And Nahum declares why the scatterer is coming. The scatterer is coming because the Lord desires to restore the majesty of Jacob, to restore the majesty of Israel. You see, God is working to restore the majesty. And that speaks of when the nation was united and undivided as a kingdom. And so we have two ways to look at this. There's the near in which he's going to take care of Assyria so that Judah hasn't yet come under the judgment, hasn't yet been declared to be going into exile yet. But this also speaks towards the future. Because it speaks of when the nation will be united as a nation and undivided as a kingdom under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That's when that prophecy and that promise will be fully realized. In the immediate though, Nineveh will be wiped out. And as 
talking to Nineveh, they're talking to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And so by such and by proxy, Assyria is also under judgment and will be wiped out because of the mistreatment of God's people. And you might be going, whoa, wait a minute. Didn't God say he was going to use Assyria to afflict his people? Yeah, he did. And here's the thing. God can use any tool he wants to afflict his people. But Assyria went beyond what God had called them to do. And they continued to afflict his people with such cruelty and such inhumane treatment that God says, now I'm going to judge you for that. Because while God may punish his people, God does not want to inflict inhumane and cruelty against them. And so they're under judgment now. I want us to see something very clearly though. I believe that this is what the Lord really wants to communicate. In both cases, whether it's the near fulfillment or the future fulfillment in the millennial kingdom, judgment precedes restoration. Restoration is connected to the judgment and destruction of enemies. You see, through the noise of the pronounced judgment on Nineveh, Nahum wanted Judah to hear the voice of the Lord assuring Israel that they will be restored and reunited. He even says, though the ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. This says it doesn't matter how it looks. It doesn't matter what God has done to them and how it looks like God has cut them off and is finished with them and just allowed them to be ravaged. It doesn't matter that it looks like there's no hope when it says that there are vine branches. It speaks of the baby offshoots. And anybody who knows anything about um, trimming shrubs and whatnot, and, and when you're shaping your, you, you don't cut off the new growth. If you cut off the new growth, there is no growth. And there's no hope for that plant. And so it's saying that though their growth has been cut off, though their vine branches or offshoots are ruined, though their hope is cut off, God promises to do something about it. And God can work something in that way. He is restoring their hope. The challenge to Judah is to see through the judgment of God on Nineveh, his promise of restoration for Israel. He describes also the devastation. And there's an important things that we need to see out of this described devastation. It's very specific in such a way that only a prophet of God could be. It says the shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the street. They rush around the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers and they stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She's carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh, has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure 
and abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, and every face grows pale. Nahum gives a picture of the devastation that the scatterer is going to bring in true prophetic fashion. It's not necessarily like a movie plane, but more like a series of pictures that is one scene after another describing the assault, the siege, and the capture of Nineveh. It says that the shields of his warriors are dyed red and the valiant men are dressed in scarlet. This is speaking the scatterer as we know from history, is the Medes and the Babylonians. The shields of the Medes and the Babylonians were red, and they dyed the shields red purposefully prior to battle, or their shields are dyed red from the viciousness of their previous conquests, or the shields are described in a red color because they also used to coat them with a layer of copper. Either way, when the Medes and the Babylonians came, the color red was easily identifiable. And so that way, when they saw that approaching army, they knew it would be the scatterer. It would be the one that God prophesied would come. Describes the destruction that happens when they do come. It says the fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations and spears are brandished. It says chariots dash madly through the streets, rushing around the plazas. They look like torches dashing back and forth like the flash of lightning. It's a sudden defeat. It's a sudden destruction. It's not something that's going to take a while. It's going to be very fast. It's going to be very furious. If you're standing in the middle of the street, you're just going to be seeing devastation and destruction passing by. The chariots are roaring around. And if you happen to see the chariots outside, be on the lookout because they're coming towards you probably. The scatter is then called to remember his officers. He's giving them orders. And they are so pumped up for this that as they get their orders and as they advance, they're going so fast, they're stumbling. Have you ever ran so fast that like your leg gets out from underneath you and you almost like totally take a nosedive? It's just me? Okay. But that was what was happening to them. They're, they're just advancing so fast. And they're advancing against Nineveh. This indestructible, undefeatable empire that has existed for hundreds of years. But here they are rushing against them in which other nations feared them and would do anything to appease them. It says that they stumble as they advance, racing to its wall. Nineveh, the whole reason why they felt secure is they have this wall. This protective shield set in place. This this thing that says, nothing can hurt me. Nothing can bother me because I have this. Sometimes we have our own shields set up in such a way. Maybe God has been speaking to us and, and we don't think that God is serious. Or maybe we don't think that the danger that he's been telling us or warning us and saying, hey, you need to give that up. Or, hey, you need to do this. And we go, but I have this and I'm protected and I'm insulated and I'm fine. Then it's described in such detail that only a prophet of God could do. And if a prophet of God were to ever give specific detail like Nahum does here, and it doesn't happen that way, they were to be cast out and stoned. 
The same rings true today. If there is someone who claims to be a prophet of God and they speak anything to you and it doesn't happen exactly and it doesn't happen word for word and they're mostly right, but not all right. I'm not saying take them out and stone them, but I'm saying you can know that they're not a prophet of God. A prophet of God is 100% right 100% of the time. It describes how Nineveh fell. So the river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. So certain the prophet is of the course of this battle, he describes it with vividness that, again, only comes from the accuracy of God. It's written as if someone were watching the battle happen right in front of them with the prophetic perfect tense, though. It's so specific. We have to remember as we read Nahum, it hasn't happened yet. Now, there's several possible interpretations given for the river gates. One, they're seen as fortified bridges. Two, they could be city gates that are just near the Tigris River or sluice gates in the dams in the city moats. They, they could be breaches made in the wall by torrents of rushing water. Or the last view is that they're floodgates used to control the flow of the Kosser River that passed directly through the city of Nineveh. This last view is supported by a natural sense of the language and also with archaeological remains that have been uncovered. Sennacherib, the ruler of the empire of the Assyrians, had dammed that river and made a reservoir outside the city. The water was restrained by a double dam with two massive river walls some distance from Nineveh. Traces are found of that within the ruins of Nineveh. And this points to the strategy used to destroy Nineveh. What do you do when you come up against an impregnable wall? Well, you could lay siege against the city and wait until all the people die on the inside, and then you can put up ladders and climb over. Or you could do like they did. Oh, look, there's a giant reservoir of water up there. And they believe that the strategy was is they opened up the river gates to use the force of water to penetrate the city wall. See, a river running through, there's some force that could be there, but it's already going through and it's already kind of a controlled force. When you dam up the river and you store up all that potential energy for a while and then you just break open the dam wall, that has a lot of potential for force. And it's said that they did that and it broke through the wall and they were able to get into the city. With the city walls breached, or maybe even with the alert of the city walls being breached by natural flood or man-controlled flood, it's undetermined if it was a natural flood or uh, man-controlled the one thing that's sure, it was God-controlled. That's why God gave his, prophet, his prophecy to the prophet so that they would know it was God's doing. The king, realizing the oracle of God being fulfilled, is believed through what they found in the remains to have resolved not to fall into the enemy hands. And here's what he did. He prepared a giant room within his palace room, within the royal precincts. He piled up all of his gold and all of his silver he shut up all of his concubines and eunuchs with him. And he lit himself on fire, burning himself down, everyone around him, all the gold, all the silver, and all of that. 
When it says that the river gates opened and the palace was eroded away, it's believed that the fire was so hot that the palace melted and the river washed it away. Now, verse seven, it says beauty is stripped and she's carried away. And this is where you'll see a difference between Bibles like the CSB that use the Syrian uh, manuscripts and Bibles like the New King James Version that use the Masoretic text or the Textus Receptus when they make their translation. Why do I tell you this? Because I'm telling you that you have to use the CSB and not the, no, I'm telling you this just so that you can understand that there's a difference. It changes nothing doctrinally, but you can get, this is where differences come up. Okay. So in the CSB, it says verse seven, beauty. In the New King James, it has it as a name, Hazab or Hazab. And here's what's happening. It says beauty is stripped away and she's carried away. Beauty is the Hebrew word Hasba. The New King James translates this word, not beauty, but as a name, Hazab. Hazab was the queen. That was her name. She's stripped away, carried away in exile. There's no historical mention of Hazab, queen of Nineveh, being found among the ashes of the fires. And so it was assumed that she escaped the fire and was carried away captive. Well, so why does it say beauty instead of Hazab? Because one of the interpreters, when they were reading the, the original manuscript, goes, oh, they must have misspelled beauty. Because they, they, you have to supply your own vowels and whatnot when you're translating Hebrew. That's kind of the way it works. I'd get into a long dissertation about that, but we don't have time for that today. And y'all would just be bored. <laughs> anyway, um, so it's talking about the queen. She wasn't found with the king. She managed to escape, only be carried off in exile. Now the women in waiting, those are just her handmaids, her bond servants, and all those that were around her. That's who they were. And so at the end of all this destruction, what we see is the city's plundered and the people pour out of it. It says Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, meaning all the people come in. The city's been full. Everybody's been coming into the city. Everybody wants to go to it. It was considered one of the wonders of the, seven, uh, of the ancient world. But on that day, everybody's pouring out of it. Everybody's leaving it. Everybody's leaving in such a hurry. They left all of their possessions, all of their valuables, everything. They were just getting away. And this is the description all around desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melting, knees trembling and knocking, the insides of the people churning, every face grows pale at the realization that judgment has come to Nineveh. That is what happens when God brings judgment. All that's going to be left is desolation, decimation, devastation. There are some, probably in Nineveh, probably today, that believe that when the judgment of God comes, somehow they're going to have their words with God. Somehow they're going to be able to state their case with God like, well, I just didn't get a fair shake in this life, Lord, and that's why I didn't do anything about it. And what actually ends up happening is the realization that God has pronounced the judgment, given time for the repentance, given time to find that forgiveness, and nobody has done it, and now judgment comes, and what happens is hearts melt at the sight of an awesome, holy, majestic God. 
knees tremble and knock at the realization that before a holy God, we are unholy. We are guilty. Your insides, have you ever faced something that you, like just terrified you? And you felt your insides, like if somebody grabbed your insides and wrenched them around? That's the description of the insides churning and the face growing pale. Have you ever had your strength just leave you? Like the color just drains out of your face and it just turns a deathly pale. That is the realization that judgment has come. And that's what's going to happen on the day of judgment. You see, not only was Nineveh promised judgment, but God has since Nineveh promised that there is a day of judgment, a day in which God is coming, a day known as the terrible day of the Lord. Now, there's not a date that you can set your calendar to. You can't circle it and go, well, I have this much time. It's just going to be business as usual. And until God goes, you know what? It's time. That's it. No more. I'm going to judge. And on that day, the people are going to go, oh no, that was true. And that's, that's why God announces the warnings. In verse 11, he says, Nahum continues on. He says, where is the lion's lair, the feeding ground of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness prowled and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away. The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its dens with the kill and its layers with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke. The sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. You see, in their own writings, the Assyrian kings thought so highly of themselves, they boasted that they were like lions. They bragged about their cruelty and their violence, their utter domination of other nations and people. It was as if they were living as lions, just destroying and ravaging whatever they wanted, bringing it back home for their family to enjoy the spoils of their heinous acts. But on that day, when judgment comes, Nahum is trying to get them to understand. He says, then when that happens, where are the lions? Assyrians, like lions, have plundered, and now they will be plundered. Senator himself is quoted and boasted, saying, like a lion, I raged. Nineveh. As the capital city, as I said, it's likened to the lair of lions. It's the hometown. It's where all the heinous of the heinous went with all their spoils. But it's going to be destroyed. Nahum pronounces the terrible statement from God. He says, beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. What a torturously terrifying statement to hear from God. It's terrifying alone when it is the Lord who is against you. It's even worse when it's the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, 
the Lord of the host of the heavenly army. There's something that God always reveals when he uses his names. Notice that he's not using just the name, the capital Lord, which we know is the Tetragrammaton, the name of Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. He's not saying the covenantal God is against you. Notice he doesn't use his name Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. He says the Lord of armies. Because that title speaks of God's place as the commander of chief over the armies of heaven. The God who conquers. Paul said in Romans 8.31. He said what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? When God says, I'm against you, the Lord God of armies, if God is against us, who can be for us? How can we stand? What can we do against that? And the answer is nothing. If God is against you, no one can be for you. For hundreds of years, Nineveh enjoyed being a superpower. Nineveh enjoyed being the power center of the world that dictated how the, the history of nations went. They relished in their might. They relished at their conquest to the point they didn't care if they offended or opposed the Lord of armies. It, it, they didn't care whether they sinned against him or his people. I know of nations today that declare themselves to be superpowers that rose to prominence because they blessed the Lord and we'll soon see that they are going to fall from power because they turned on the Lord. It says, now the Lord of armies was against them, against the promise from God. And God, God promises that their chariots will go up in smoke. The sword will devour their young, their young lions and offspring. God will cut off their prey from the earth. And I read that and I was like, cut off their prey from, wait a minute, that sounds like he's just going to attack everybody else. What he's actually saying is if you think of it in terms of the animal kingdom, he's going to take away their prey. They will have no food. They will find no sustenance. They will have no strength. He's going to remove that from them. They will no longer be allowed to prey on anyone else. Their messengers were, were, were held with such fear by all the other nations. If the messengers of Assyria came to you, you would receive them. You would treat them well. You would do whatever you could to be in their good graces because hopefully they're not coming to tell you that Assyria is against you and coming to wipe you out. But God says that the messengers that commanded the listening ears and attentiveness all over the world would never be heard from again. Their glory days are coming to an end under the judgment of God. And in the end, as Nineveh ends, as Nineveh, as Nineveh comes under that judgment, Nineveh's enemy is not flesh those who stand judged, their enemy is not flesh. The enemy is Yahweh of armies. He's the one opposing them. 
And so God himself calls to Nineveh to get her attention. God himself is calling to those who are going to be under the judgment to say, look, see me. See, it is I who is fighting against you. Very clearly through Nahum's prophecy, we see God judges. He promised judgment and he brought judgment. He's judging Nineveh and bringing devastation to them. And this happened in 612 BC when Medes and the Babylonians joined together to attack Nineveh. Now, granted, the Medes are going to come against Babylon and conquer Babylon later, as we know through human history. Um, But at this time, they weren't that strong yet. And so they had to join forces with the Babylonians and they overthrew Assyria. Though they were the ones that attacked, make no mistake, it was God was judging. The last verse of chapter two, where the Lord says, I am against you. Beware. We need to understand that the Lord spoke this to Nineveh, but not only to Nineveh. God speaks these words to all who have gone their own way, who have turned against what he has commanded, what he has called us to do. He speaks these words to all who have sinned against him. He speaks these words to all who would be guilty and face that judgment that God has promised. And and the vivid picture of this judgment, it's not given to titillate our minds and get us all going when we look through the annals of history and, 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 and we go, wow, God said this and look at how it got fulfilled. It's not, it's not just for us to build up our own knowledge and to, to see that. What he's doing is God gave these judgments with such vivid clarity that those who read them and those who see his judgments fulfilled in history would know God judges and that God's judgment surely comes. And as judge, God does right. What is right? Where we're all concerned. If you've gone your own way, if you've spurned God's word and said, I don't need this and turned and went to follow your own ways, you spurning God's laws, seeking out your own corrupt devices, going after what you want versus what God has asked. You're guilty. And justice demands judgment for your rebellion. And the truth is, is God must and God will judge And in terms of that great judgment that is still yet to come, that God has still promised, the punishment is the lake of fire. The punishment is hell. And in in terms of that punishment, the fall of Nineveh seems insignificant compared to the fall for all of eternity. And I think the, the, the one message that God wants to get through this at least the message he made clear to me was we need to seek restoration with God when we're facing judgment. When we realize that we're guilty before God, we need to seek restoration 
before judgment comes because God always wins. Jesus warned of judgment in his day. The Jews didn't make adequate preparation. They did nothing about it. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem also was overrun and fully conquered by the Roman Empire. All throughout the New Testament, the warnings given that Jesus is coming in to usher in the great day of judgment. Why does God tell us this ahead of time? Why does God tell about judgment before it happens? God tells us this so that we might turn from our sin and seek his face at the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because deliverance is found at the foot of the cross. It's here that God poured out his judgment on sin through Christ. For those who call upon Jesus for salvation. You see, restoration is not found apart from judgment. God restores justice by pouring out judgment. That's how he'll restore justice and and make everything right in this world. Everything will be judged. The Bible declares it as a day of everything being melted, burned up, and all things being made new. But if you come to the foot of the cross, if you come to Christ, God restores us individually because he judged sin on Jesus. And through him, we get the restoration. If Jesus is not your savior and you're not covered in the forgiveness that his blood provides, you will, like Nineveh and every other nation and every other person under the judgment and wrath of God, find that all your efforts, all your preparations and all your other schemes to save yourself will not prevail. You, you may think that you're going to get there to the end when judgment comes and say, but God, I wasn't as bad as so-and-so. Well, it doesn't matter. Or God, I did all these good things. Doesn't matter. God is warning of the judgment to come because now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to find forgiveness. Now is the time for restoration. When judgment comes, it'll be too late. And it's surprising how many scoff as they read about Nineveh and how, how did they receive the warning from Jonah and only 140 years later scoff and, and ignore the warning of the coming judgment. And how many people scoff when they read the New Testament and go, man, those Jews, how did they not know who their Messiah was? And they missed the signs and were destroyed. And yet, those same people are doing the same thing today by ignoring the signs of the end times. Because God gave warnings and he said, when you see these things, know that the end is near. And when the end comes, it's too late. Judgment is here. So we have to come to Christ now. Today is the day of salvation. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we thank you so much for revealing yourself through your prophet Nahum, Father God, through the judgment that was pronounced on Nineveh. Father, you didn't pronounce judgment so that necessarily that people would look and just know that you're a God who judges, but Lord, you pronounced the judgment 
to provide opportunity for forgiveness, for restoration. And Father, help us to see that today that same warning is given. We know that there's a day coming in which the Lord Jesus is coming back. And we know that when he comes back, he brings with him that day, that terrible day of the Lord for those who are not his. But Father, we also have that promise of judgment that we know that is so true, that we know that you fulfill so that those who are in Christ Jesus knows that when Christ does come back and brings that terrible day of the Lord, it is you fulfilling your promise and that through judgment and as you've been faithful to fulfill in all of your word and all of your prophecies, you judge sin. And we know that it's true through Christ that you judged sin. And in Christ, we have forgiveness. The worship team is going to play this last song. And I want to invite you to stand and praise and worship God together with us. But I also ask you to use this time to ask God and be vulnerable and say, God, search my heart. Where am I? Have I been covered by the blood of Christ? Because if you haven't been covered by the blood of Christ, you stand under judgment. And you face the wrath of God but you don't have to. He's calling you. He's making you aware. He's letting you know the warning today so that you can come to Christ and ask for forgiveness. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of Christ shall be saved. And the other thing that I want is if God speaks to you and says you are covered by the blood of Christ, I want you to stand up and praise his name in this song that we're going to sing because It's through the judgment that happened to Jesus Christ that Christ willingly laid down his life for you that you have been restored by the blood of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.